After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priest, the scribes, sought how they might take him, Jesus, by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spinnaker. And then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Surely I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. We'll stop there for now. So this is that last night, you know, everything's in motion and Jesus is headed for the cross and the purpose of his coming and the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. The greatest act of love and the defining moment for all humanity and the universe itself is moving with Jesus going toward the cross. After all the confrontation there in the Temple Mount with religious leaders and Jesus teaching on his second coming, we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. This, of course, was one of the three feasts of the Jews in the Old Testament all the Jewish men were required by the law of God in the Old Testament to come to Jerusalem three times a year for these feasts and present themselves before the Lord, which is a good thing. It's a good thing. Could you imagine if all of us men and women three times a year were in a sense called to go before the Lord and just kind of give an account before the Lord, like really do that? Like that would just be awesome and you appreciate why God had that. And so Jerusalem would swell in size from, you know, maybe 50,000, people to some estimate over a million people during the Passover feast because the Jews from all over would come there for this holiday. And Passover of the three, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacle seemed to be the driving one because it was instituted when the Lord delivered the Jews from their bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh and God passed over the, the death of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn in the house of Egypt under the ten plagues on Pharaoh and his household and God passed over. So it is no coincidence, of course, that Jesus is going to go to the cross on Passover because we know that he is the Passover lamb, that that Passover lamb from about 1500 BC and celebrated every year until Christ came we're talking 15 centuries. That's a lot of time for a people group to understand God's love and grace and his means of atonement and forgiveness for sins. But this is the last Passover of the Old Testament because Jesus fulfills it and he's transitioning it. John the Baptist said it best. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter the Apostle said, We've not been redeemed with gold and silver, but with the precious blood as of a lamb. And then in Paul writing the Corinthian church, he said, Christ who is our Passover. So we know, as Scripture interprets Scripture, what was there in the Old Testament for the Jewish people as a people of covenant. Passover was this pinnacle moment once a year to remind them of their deliverance from slavery, literally as a nation, and speaking symbolically of the deliverance Christ would give us from slavery of sin and bondage to our Pharaoh, Satan, because the Bible says we're all born in bondage to Satan uh, through sin. Born in bondage to sin, Satan, and the grave, death. So... That's the background, and it's, in, it's just God's economy and God's plans for all the ages that Jesus would be the Passover lamb, and these events are happening during the Passover feast. It's by design and order, and we need to realize that God is in the details, and there's no randomness with the Lord. He knows, 
he's a God of order. He does random things in a sense, but there's order to everything he's doing with divine purpose and how unsearchable are his ways uh, past finding and his truths. And he's always got a purpose. And so it's, a, it's incredible, that first verse about the Passover. And these religious leaders are planning by trickery to put him to death. You know, there are people in the world that are very cunning. I'm sure you know that. They're very cunning and crafty people. That's why Jesus said to disciples to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. We need to be wise in the world. And we need to be gentle, but we need to be wise. And there's a delicate balance there. And meekness that Jesus was ascribed to Jesus for meekness is, can, should never be construed as weakness. Meekness is submitting to the authority of the Father or to us submitting to the authority of God as a whole. Uh, but it's not weakness. For when they came to take Jesus in the garden, he, they all fell back. He struck them back. And he could have called, as he said, legions of angels to his behalf. That's meekness. It's power under control submitted to the Father. Weakness is the inability or the impotence to be able to do something. And so this trickery, these kind of men, like, it's incredible the beauty of the cross because there's the beauty of God's love, but there's the great evil of humanity. And these two, they're magnified. They're so magnified, the evil of humanity and the beauty of divinity in the cross. And so this trickery, these religious leaders are supposed to be pointing people to Christ as their Messiah. They're planning, they're plotting to kill God. It's, it's incredible, the Son of God. It's amazing. But in the midst of this is the beauty of the story of Mary. Now, we know this is Mary. The other gospels shed light for us that this is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Mary, or Martha, Martha and Mary. She's we got a couple of records of her. The first record of her is in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is teaching. Martha was busy and Mary was seated at the feet of Jesus and listening to his teaching. And Jesus said to Martha, you're busy about many things, but Mary has sought the, the better thing to just that time to receive what Jesus is teaching. She was at, we're told contextually, at the feet of Jesus. Then when they sent for Jesus because Lazarus was sick with a sickness unto death, that Jesus delayed his coming for us in the Gospel of John. We know this story. And he said, this is not a, a sickness on, you know, to death, but for God's glory. But then, of course, Lazarus did die, but he was not permanently dead. And Jesus called him forth from the grave. But when Jesus came on the scene, Martha ran out and said, if you'd been here, you could have done something. And that's when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, though he dies, shall live forevermore. And she said, I believe that. But then when Mary came out, it says she fell at his feet. First image of Mary... Luke's gospel, at the feet of Jesus, receiving. Second image of Mary, at the feet of Jesus, weeping over the death of her brother. Third image of Mary, pouring out a year's wage of spinnacle oil upon the head, anointing his head. Man, Mary, this Mary, is really special. Is really special, this woman. So special that Jesus said, wherever the gospels preach, this story needs to be told. Now, when did Jesus in any other place, attach any of the stories of what he did to the gospel being preached. Now, it's not necessary for salvation, but it's a memorial to her. It's a memorial to worship. It's a memorial to sacrifice, not in a way of earning salvation, but sacrifice in a form of worship to the one who gives us salvation. It's a memorial. Let's think about this. For example, the woman caught in adultery in the gospel of John. It's an amazing story. Jesus writes in the sand, everyone walks away. But we're not told that's going to be told everywhere the gospel is preached as a memorial to her turning from her sins or any other story. It is this story. And it's recorded for us in other gospels. 
So the principle of repetition is there for us as well. Do you realize every time Billy Graham preached the gospel that this story is out there as a memorial to this woman? Every time Raul Reese did a Somebody Loves You crusade, it's out there as a memorial to this woman. Mike McIntosh in, this, in the Horizon outreaches that he did, Festivals of Life. Greg Laurie this summer, Anaheim, last year, Dallas. Everywhere the gospel is preached, you sharing your faith, someone shared their faith with you. This memorial, though maybe not told, is put out there by Jesus as something to associate with the good news of Jesus Christ. Because so many people receive Jesus as a genie in the sky to solve their problems and not a savior. What makes the good news is understanding the depth of the bad news, that we are sinners and we cannot save ourselves. And it is an understanding that we can never save ourselves or earn our way to heaven, that that is bad news. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it's the good news of Jesus dying for sinners that makes it such good news. But if we don't see ourselves as desperate sinners, or as Jonathan Edwards said so many years ago, sinners in the hands of an angry God, the famous uh, revival message of the 1700s in the colonial era, the first great awakening in America, we don't understand the value of the gospel. And we have a soft-sell gospel in our country these days. This, this sort of Jesus is your genie in the sky. He'll, he'll raise your self-esteem. He'll make you feel better about yourself. He'll improve your pocketbook. He'll, he'll cure you of every disease you ever have. Well, he can, but he doesn't always do that. And in any ways, you're going to die sooner or later. You can be cured of every disease, but sooner or later, about 95, 99, you're going to die. And the ticker's going to quit ticking. That's just the way it works. David said it best, I go the way of all men. So I prefer good health, and I prefer to be pain-free and to be functional and healthy physically to serve the Lord. But there are many good people that love the Lord and are greatly afflicted by the Lord. Amy Carmichael was in a bed for 20 years, and she wrote some of the deepest, most profound things for the kingdom of God ever written in the history of the church on a bed as an invalid. So we could never underestimate that. This woman's sacrifice is associated with the good news of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and rising from the grave for our sins. Wherever the gospel is preached, this woman's act with me on this day is a memorial for time to eternity. So we need to think about this. It is an act of worship. And it's a costly act of worship. And again, we think of King David where he said, I'll not give the Lord that which costs me nothing. God doesn't call us to bring animal sacrifices anywhere to show our devotion. We don't have burnt offerings and sin offerings and trespass offerings in the new covenant. But we are told to present ourselves as a living offering, which is our reasonable service in Romans chapter 12. We're told by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 to offer up spiritual sacrifices. So those spiritual sacrifices can be just our, dev- our devotion to the Lord, our-, our consecration of our lives to the Lord. It can be fasting before the Lord of different things for different seasons. It can be uh, all in with the Lord for various things that he might call us to do. It could be our, our time, our energy. It's something that's sacrificial, though. That so many people have a very shallow faith, and Jesus warned about a faith that's shallow. It, it goes into the soil, but as soon as it's a hard day, they wilt in the parable of the soils. There's no depth. As we go all in with the Lord, with different things he has for us, it's costly to serve the Lord, not to be saved by the Lord, but as a result of our salvation. It's, it's equity with the Lord. It's credibility. It's, Jesus said to store up our treasures in heaven where thieves and moth cannot destroy. Many of you here have gone out on different missionary trips, 
at different times. Many of you have tithed and given offerings that have gone out to advance the gospel. Many of you volunteer and serve in this church, have for years, and it's so commendable. Many of you have volunteered for decades at other churches before being here, maybe. Jesus said, when you give a cup of cold water in his name, you do not lose that reward. And we never lose the rewards when we do things as unto the Lord. And the simplest act of kindness or the most profound act of bravery, those are all types of, of worship to the Lord. We don't need shallow faith in 2019. In fact, it's a very dangerous thing to have shallow faith in Jesus in 2019. These are desperate times. There's no place for shallow faith than Sri Lanka, Colombia, China, India, Saudi Arabia, Dubai, Australia, America, Canada, Mexico. There is no place, nor has there ever really been a place for shallow faith. It's found an audience in America where people want the temporal as if it's the eternal. This woman, it's a year's worth of wage released in worship to the Lord as she anointed his head. And Jesus appreciated the apostles, not just the apostles, it says, and they. Another gospel tells us it's the apostles. Oh, it was the religious, it was the apostles going to lead the church. Well, well this, could, this it's about what we do. We got we to gotta feed the poor. No, it's actually Judas who was in charge of the money. Because the other gospels tell us it was Judas. So it was they here. Then another gospel tells us it's the apostles. And then another gospel tells us it was Judas. And he didn't care about the poor. He cared about the money. The man who would hang himself. The man who would betray the Lord and hang himself within a day. Man, that's what religion does. It makes you clueless. It makes you zealous and clueless. But worship makes you tender and compassionate and sensitive and discerning. A year's wage in a moment, not to be redeemed. I think of Elizabeth uh, Elliot, where after her husband was killed by the Akinas, a whole year of her life she spent translating a certain dialect into English, the New Testament. And it was stolen from her backpack in Quito. It was in a backpack it was stolen. Completely lost. No backup copy. That was it. A year of her life after she buried her husband who was killed by the Akas. A year of, I mean, I spent years trying to become more proficient at Spanish. A year to translate a native dialect into a New Testament translation so they can know the gospel and boom, stolen by a petty thief in Quito, Ecuador. That would break a lot of people. When Elizabeth Elliot talks about pruning, John 15, we think of pruning dead branches. When I pruned two dead branches off a palm tree this week in my front yard. I'm like, look at that brown branch. I'm going to prune that. You know, put it in the green trash bin. You know, got two of them. I pruned it was dead. I got a beautiful flower in our front right now that we, that's just blooming out of this plant my mom gave us. It's so beautiful. I took a picture of it and sent it to my mom. Uh, but the, you know what? I would never prune that, that flower. The Lord might prune that flower. See, he prunes what's fruitful so you can be more fruitful. We prune what's dead, but we don't want. Oh, here's my lame offering. Like Pastor Chuck used to say, don't bring your junk to church. God doesn't want your lame offerings. You're getting something for the Lord. Bring the first fruits. Our offerings can be forgiving people. It can be giving up that which is most dear to us. It can be casting our dreams upon the altar. 
A year's wage of anointing oil on the head of Jesus at a key moment and discerning that moment, she was anointing him for his burial. Who else was anointing him for his burial? They're arguing over who's going to be ruling on the right hand and the left hand. Peter's going to say, ah, what these guys, these guys aren't going to, I would never deny you. This is the night I show you who the starting quarterback is. I'm your guy. Talk is cheap. People can talk about, oh, I'm going to do this for God. Listen, the end of it matters better than the beginning. Show me someone that truly worships the Lord, and I'll show you someone who's truly fruitful for the Lord and pleasing to the Lord. Pruning's part of worship. Man, I can't imagine going out in the front yard right now and cutting down that flower. That's so beautiful. That came from this plant my mom gave us. But in going through things in the last few months, I thought I've considered, like, the Lord show me, I don't prune dead branches. I prune fruitful branches. And sometimes that's the offering. Fruitful ministries, bow. Wow, like, why would you let this church fall apart? Why would you let this incredible outreach fall apart? Why would you? Listen, we don't know. But everything can be an offering to the Lord by faith if we're discerning and worshipful. And before we move on from Mary, let's point out one other thing about her. Jesus defended her, let her alone. Some people might attack you and say you're foolish for for doing this for the Lord or doing that for the Lord and this and that and everything else, but the Lord knows. Look what he said in verse 6. She has done a good work for me. It's not a work for salvation. It's a work of adoration from the heart of devotion. She has done a good work for me. There's a lot of do-gooders out there doing good, but the good work for the Lord doesn't just do good for the temporal. It transcends to all eternal. I've said this many times. You can dig a well and give people water. Good for you. You can dig a well, give people water, and give them the living water of Jesus Christ. Better for you. You can build an oven and bake them bread. Good for you. You can build on bacon bread and give him Jesus Christ the bread of life. Better for you. She did a good work for Jesus. The action, the motive, adoration. We haven't think of a good work of like feeding the poor, or, you know, doing things like that. You know, she's worshiping the Lord and it's a good work. She's making a sacrifice economically from her life and it's a good work. She's in the moment, and it's a good work. Twelve apostles who will change the world, eleven who will change the world, they're still arguing over who's going to rule and reign. It's a good work. And verse 8 is even perhaps more profound. She's done what she could. Not only has she done a good work for the Lord, she's done what she could. And isn't that what it's all about? Doing what you can. You know, when you're all in with the Lord and you can say, I did the best I could, good for you. You did the best you could. I did what I could. I did the best I could. You go th- I'm going through Genesis right now, and you go through the historical books of the Old Testament. It's people living by faith, trying to do the best they can. I often think of Josiah, how at 39 he went out and took on Necho Pharaoh and was cut down in battle at the age of 39. The best of all the kings, really. It's not hard to prove that, that he was all in. And he was defending the land that was their land from a foreign invader. Like, based upon everything, you have a right to this is our land, fight the good fight, this is our land. And, you know, we're in revival, we've reinstituted Passover feasts, we've done this, we've cleansed the temple, we've done, it's like, it's a good work. He did the best he could, and he was cut down in battle. 
Ahab was cut out in battle and he was an, he was an evil man. It rains on the just and the unjust. Good things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. You do the best you can. We got one life. Worship the Lord. Be sacrificial to the Lord. Be all in and obey him. Do a good work for the Lord, not because he's going to save you for it, but because he already has saved you. And it's an act of worship. And do what you can. We have our life. We have immediate family, extended relatives, the sphere of influence in the neighborhood, in the community, at work, Calvary Chapel Movement, Body of Christ, Orange County, Body of Christ globally, beyond denominational boundaries, whatever. Do it for the Lord. And do what you can. That's how I look at it. God makes clear your stewardship, my stewardship. And it's not about perception of greatness amongst humanity. It's about being the servant of all before the king who rules over all humanity. Who is that good and faithful servant whom his master will find when he comes? Well, is that faithful servant who is doing what his master's called him to do when he does come. Do good work for the Lord. Let it be costly. Make sacrifices to the Lord. Not to be saved, but because you are saved. And do the best you can. We're not called to save the world. Do the best you can. Amy Carmichael went to India. She went to Japan first, and then she ended up in India. And for decades, she did the best she could to save 12, 13, 14-year-old girls that were headed into child prostitution. She did the best she could. She didn't save that many. But she saved some. And she'd saved none. She did the best she could. Elizabeth Elliot's trans life was to go serve the Ak Indians. She gave them her husband. She translated a dialect. It was stolen. She wrote books. She's in heaven. She did the best she could. She wrote books on purity, books on suffering, books on loneliness. She did the best she could. Pastor Chuck, we see it. He did the best he could. Do the best he can as unto the Lord. That's the memorial for this woman associated with the gospel. And it's worth our time to give it thought tonight. Now we read on. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priest to betray him, Jesus, to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. And in the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup. And when given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Surely I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day 
when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The preparation for the Passover feast, where they're going to celebrate it, what Jesus says, two very profound, well, more than two profound statements, but two we'll focus on. But first of all, this Passover feast, the facility where they're meeting to have Passover. So they came to him. Now Judas is betraying him. That's all going the way it's going to go. They said to Jesus, verse 12, where, do you, where are we going to celebrate Passover? And he said, look, you go here, and this is what you're going to see. This is what you're going to say. This is what they're going to say, and this is how it's going to be. So if you look at verse 15, Jesus said, he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. Let's focus on that for a minute. He will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. He a man you've never met before, who you identify because he's carrying water. He, that man who you will see because you will see him, he will show you a room fully furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. Verse 16, and they found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 15, Jesus says, you will find it prepared. And then he said in verse 16, it says in the narrative, they prepared it for him. I love these kind of passages that connect the sovereignty of God, the preparations of God, the foresight, the foreknowledge of God working, going before us, and yet still the free will of men and the experience of men and women to be a part of God's plan as he works in and through us according to his purposes. Because clearly, like so often in the scriptures and in life, walking with the Lord, God has gone before us to prepare the way. He goes before us to prepare the way. I go before you to prepare the way. Ultimately, he said that in John 14. Like, I go before you to prepare a way. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He goes before us to prepare the way. There's no dumb luck or randomness for the child of God. There are just divinely orchestrated details for our life. In fact, Ephesians 2.10 tells us that our life is a work of art to be on display. Uh, It's a work of art and unique details of our life to be looked upon for all eternity as uh, like a glorious decoration in uh, the master's house. We've been watching Boise Boys with Luke Caldwell, the home renovation on the, you know, that channel there that Of course, Luke Caldwell did worship for us our very first service here when we started the church. It was his band, Grand Prize, and then eventually became Esterlin. And Luke's been, the last time we did worship here was like maybe two years ago. God had a big change in his life. We knew he was working on this TV stuff with the home renovation on the HGTV, whatever. So Boise Boys. And it's, it's really cool because him and uh, the guy Clint, they do, they, you know, they're, they're, two, they're the odd couple. And so they, you know, they, get these, they, they look at two houses. They, they pick the one they're going to work on and these incredible renovations. And, but what makes it incredible, apart from you know, opening, knocking out walls and opening up wind, you know, light and all these things, and, and is Luke does the decorating. He's not the technical structural. He's the merchandising, how it looks when they showcase the houses. And he goes out and finds all these cool little like uh, vintage couch and this piece of tapestry and the, even how he does the tile and all these unique details. Like he, he reverses tiles a certain way, finds this marble slab that's going to be the fireplace and, and then he just, this, this, this couch from the 40s, he gives it a new look and, and like you go to this wood guy and they get this giant piece of walnut wood that's like $1,200 and that's the bedpost. And everything about these homes that they showcase is unique. It, it's personal. 
It, it, they did this one chandelier. It was so crazy. They went to the welder, and he's talking with the welder, like, we want this look. We're looking for this vibe. But when you walk in, and it's there, and the light's in the center, and it's this crazy-looking, kind of eclectic, but super cool chandelier. I'm like, you know, it makes you knock, want to knock out all your walls and expand your living space and definitely get new cabinets in your kitchen. That is a sure bet for anyone that watches Boise Boys, okay? But what's fascinating is uniqueness of the items that he puts in the house. It's not stuff you buy at Ikea or Target or, you know, who even knows where you buy furniture anymore, but it's not that. It's unique stuff, and, and my daughters are the same way. They're like thrift shoppers, and they find these quirky little cool things, and, and, and that's what they work. And, and this is us. This is us in the house of God. This is us in the kingdom. Like Luke calls, like, I see this, I see that, and we want this, and this type of wood, and we want, yeah, we want this wood in the ceiling, and we want this, you know, tricky brick here, and, and it's like, it's all unique, and it never looks the same. It's unique. The houses are unique. The decorations are unique. That's us in the kingdom of God. We're all works of art. We're completely different. And God, in the journey that we're on, uh, a man or a woman plans our ways, but the Lord directs our steps. And he's the good shepherd. He leads us. And as he directs our steps, the experiences of our life are transforming us from glory to glory in Jesus to make us like Jesus. So on the mountaintop, yay, we're world champions, Jesus. In the valley, we're in excruciating pain. Yay, ooh, ah, help Jesus. In all those experiences of the journey, it's, it's molding us and shaping us to be like Christ. I have plenty of money in the bank. I have no money in the bank. You know, I own a house. I lost a house. I have a great job. I don't have a job. You know, like all the experiences... This dream came to pass. This dream became a nightmare. As we let Jesus be the author and finisher of our faith and we look unto him, in that journey that we're on, he's prepared the way before us. And there's no randomness to the events and circumstances that happen in our life. You go to the book of Job when it all went wrong. What does literally God say for Satan? Have you considered my servant Job? He's a good man, just and upright. And all those events that happened in his life, in the middle of his deep valley, he goes, hey, when I come through this, I'll be refined like gold. You know, he spoke of the written word when we're not sure how much the word was written at that time. Job says in the middle of his trial, your word is my hope, your written word. And that's amazing, because he's about 500 years before Moses. He guides our journeys. So if your King David danced before the Ark of the Lord or, what, or you know, Deborah, you're saying, go get him, Bark, you know, like whatever. It's like he guides it. He prepares the way before us. He makes it rain so Sisera's chariots stick in the mud. Like he goes before us. We think it's like, wow, this is crazy how this happened. It's not crazy how it happened. The steps of a righteous woman, a righteous man are orchestrated by the Lord. And the journey is transformation of the character through faith in him to be ready for the destination when we get there, the kingdom. And so he prepares the way before us all the way to the kingdom. He prepares the way before us to what we face tomorrow. That's why Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. you got plenty of stuff on your plate for today. That's a soft translation. I'll give you the real one. Don't worry about tomorrow. Sufficient is the trouble for today. Tomorrow will take care of itself. But seek first the kingdom of God. So this story, the preparation that Jesus said, hey, it's covered. When we went to Vermont to start the church, I drove up to Vermont first week of January 1995 with Jim O'Connor and some friends. 
We went to a bank to uh, open up an account. And the lady at the bank had been listening to Pastor Chuck. And she was praying for a Bible teaching church to come to Burlington, Vermont. He said, oh my goodness, I've been praying for you to come to my city. He prepares a way before us. She went to that church. I can tell you, at first service had the people that went up there to start the church and her. He goes before us. We went to Virginia to start the church. We drove across country. We get, we get to Virginia Beach to get food. I go into a random sandwich place. There's a big shopping center there at, Ken, at Kensville Road and uh, Indian River. It's where CBN is and Pat Robertson. There's a lot of restaurants, big churches. I mean, it's religion country, right? Everyone's got a big church, a bigger, bigger, bigger church down the street. And big shopping centers. We go to this random sandwich shop. The guy goes, hey, dude, you're Joy Berend. What are you doing in Virginia Beach? We're coming here to plant a church. No kidding. Hey, bro, my friend works for the Beacon, and he needs to write a religious article, but he doesn't know anyone religious. Would you be willing to do a story for the Virginia pilot? Yeah. We just drove across country for nine days with a dog and a nine-month-old. We had just gotten to Virginia Beach. My wife was a witness, and that guy, I guess, hey, the paper called. They did this big story on me. Famous surfer starts church in Virginia Beach. Guess what happened? People came to the church. He goes before us. It's not like I got them more like, man, I'm just feeling the sandwich shop, like a vibe. You know, it's like, I'm just like, man, I'm hungry. Feel like a sandwich. We think we're thinking, thinking. The Lord's like, you're thinking sandwich. He puts the desires in our hearts. Like, hmm, Italian, Mexican. No, how about sandwich? You know? And he goes like, dude, Joey Brand. Like, you know, how many restaurants could we gone into that day? And it's a surfer going like, dude, Joey Brand, what are you doing in Virginia Beach? He goes before us. He goes before you. Wherever he's taking you on tomorrow, he goes before you and he prepares the way. And there's work for you to do when you get there. Not to be saved, but because you are saved. Because he prepares the way and then they prepared the feast. Look, he prepared the way before them, but they got there and there was stuff for them to do. Like plant a church and baptize people at Croatan and these other beaches and build up a body of Christ and go to Vermont and preach the gospel and share the gospel with people at the Sheraton Hotel and pray for the president when he walked by you and all the things that he had for us in Vermont. There's things to do. He prepares a way before you and then he's got something he wants to do through you in the process. It's like the water pots in the gospel of John chapter 2. Fill up the water pots and then let him do what he's going to do. It's, it's that combination. Like God could just do it. But it's so much, I guess there's a lot more enjoyment for him to do it through us. Because he doesn't preach through angels till the end of the game. He preaches through us. Our lives are a tapestry, a work of art. And he prepares the way before us. And then there's a work to do in and through us. Now you go back to the garden in chapter 2. They were to till the garden. God had a task for them. Work is not punishment from the Lord. Work is a blessing and opportunity of the Lord before the fall. Man, we don't want to miss it. Trust him to prepare. That's why it says in Proverbs, you know, you know trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not on understanding, acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will direct your path. Get on the journey and trust that he's preparing the way. And even if you don't have something like that, like, dude, Joey Brand, like, you don't need that. You just, by faith, we know he's preparing the way. And sometimes there's great opposition, like, is the Lord in this? That's all the more confirmation that he is in it. 
I, I, just, I just love a passage like verse 15 and 16 because to me, I just see those words. You know, when you study the Bible, you look for words and, and where they pop out, the context. It was prepared for them, but they had to prepare the Passover feast. And that's how God works. He goes before us sovereignly, but he chooses to work through us uh, volitionally through our will and our willingness to obey him. He gives us choice and he lets us make decisions. We raise kids, right? They become adults. What do they do? They make decisions. And we have to let them make decisions. And wisdom is justified by our children. And I move on from this. David said in Psalm 139, the days fashioned for him when as yet there was none of them. We're on an hourglass. Yeah. Some of you grew up with hourglasses. My mom used to, we had an hourglass in our kitchen. My mom did three minutes soft boiled eggs. There it is. She'd flip that hourglass. Three minutes, the sand would fall through. Once it was done, it was done. Our life is like an hourglass. We can see the bottom, what we've used up, but we do not know how much is at the top. We all know how many, it's not hard math to figure out how many days you've been alive. And in that timeline, he goes before us. I feel so bad for all the people. Like, when people persecute you or come against you for your faith or give you a hard time, I feel so, I, actually, I'm becoming more empathetic for them because not only are they bringing blessings on you while they are trying to bring curses on you and they don't even know it, which is sad for them, but they're missing everything God has for them. Like, as bad as hell is to be separated from the Lord for all eternity in darkness by yourself imploding on yourself and all your selfishness and pride, you missed everything God had for you. Like, as if it's not bad enough just to be you with you, in darkness for all eternity, you missed all that God had for you, which was your very purpose. We rejoice that we're here tonight. And it's a joy to serve the Lord. It's an opportunity to joy. Then Jesus said in verse 24, my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. And we close with this tonight. I mean, obviously, most of us know Jesus is the new covenant. And he's the new and everlasting covenant. When Jesus took the Passover lamb feast and he took the bread and the cup, he, he took what was the Old Testament and he said, this is the new. The book of Hebrews tells us that what was old is obsolete. It's, it's fading. It's obsolete. When the veil was torn, when Jesus died on the cross from top to bottom, it was symbolic. That veil there in the temple that represented the separation of holy God from sinful men. When God tore it from top to bottom, when Jesus died on the cross, it was symbolic that God made the way. Man could never ascend and make the way. But God came and he tore the veil. The veil being torn is symbolic that the way is made through Jesus. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, God and men, the man Christ Jesus. John, John and Peter preaching said, there's no other name given among heaven by which we must be saved in the name of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And so he is the new covenant, and the book of Hebrews tells us he's the everlasting covenant. And the New Testament warned us about adding to his word or taking away from his word. So it's not Jesus plus any other belief system that people come up with, and they've come up with a lot of them in the last 200 years. It's Jesus. That's what I'm really enjoying teaching Colossians on Saturday night, because it's just Jesus. In him you are complete. The new covenant, our sufficiency is in Christ. In him we are fully sufficient we are fully saved in him. We are equipped with all things pertaining to life and godliness. All the promises of God are yes, yes, or no, no, but they're not yes and no. And he is all we will ever need. And that's why it says, looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let us lay aside those weights that so easily ensnare us and looking unto him. It's the new covenant. So we have communion once a month just to be reminded, like he said, that we're saved by grace and we're functioning in the fullness. All those things that Joseph in the Old Testament, Jacob, 
you know, Jacob's ladder and Isaac, the son of promise and Abraham and, you know, Sarah laughing at 90, uh, 99. I'm going to have a baby or at 90. I'm going to have a baby. It's just, it's craziness. You know, it's just crazy. Laughter. Isaac means laughter. And it's like all those stories, they, they happened and they were covenants. Noah coming off the ark with the same of his household and building the altar. That was the Noah covenant where Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord in Genesis 6. Every covenant was a building building blocks to this covenant. This new covenant is the everlasting covenant. And it fulfills all the other covenants. And we're in that. Or as the New Testament says, things that people and even angels desire to look into, we now know. We now know because the knowledge of God and the mysteries of God and the hidden wisdom of God is revealed to us and to our children through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, as it says in Ephesians and Colossians, that we would know and understand the wisdom and the things of God. Those prayers of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1, they're ours. You know, the opportunity to wake up in the morning and read the Bible and spend time with the Lord, angels desire to look into the full knowledge that we have in our New Testament. It's kind of cool that God, even outside of time, kept them from knowing everything that's going on. Like, ooh, ooh, ooh. Well, no. now what's going on with Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah? Like, why, what's, hmm. They do what Pastor Chuck would say. When you get to what you don't know, I'm like, when you do know. So why is God telling Abraham to walk up to Mount Moriah with Isaac and offer him up? And why is Abraham saying, the boy and I go yonder to worship the Lord, but we will return? What's going on? Angels don't know everything especially fallen angels, because if they did, they wouldn't have put Jesus on the cross, which was their defeat. But we have it. We have the new covenant, everlasting covenant, Hebrews tells us. We have access. We, what's your point? Hebrews 8.1, we have a great high priest in the heavens that ever lives and intercedes for us. We come boldly in time of need. We cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us. And we, we can have the mind of the spirit. And we have the spirit indwelling us. And we are the temple of God. We have it all. And it's a life to be lived. It's a life to be enjoyed. The highs, the lows, the fullness of all the blessings of God in his son, Jesus Christ, confirmed by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Praise the Lord. The my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many, Hey, the moment we believe, we're the many. So praise the Lord. Amen.